0: Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques and leadership required To succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics, the show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen. And I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. This episode of Leaders of Analytics features Raj Rajaram, the founder of global decision sciences company Mu Sigma. Mu Sigma serves more than 140 of the Fortune 500 and the company's mission is to simplify complex problems through the science of decisions. Diraj shares his views on problem solving in business and how MuSigma's three core beliefs have been instrumental in the company's success. At MuSigma, they believe in learning over knowing, extreme experimentation and the new IP. Their data-driven decision-making approach has helped solve some of their toughest business challenges and set them apart from the competition. As an entrepreneur or business leader, you will gain valuable insights into using data to solve complex issues, as well as an insider's perspective on Diraj's entrepreneurial journey. In this episode, we discuss Diraj's entrepreneurial journey from a one man band to leading thousands of employees, the critical moments that led Diraj to become a founder, and the key elements of entrepreneurial success. Mu Sigma's unique recruitment and training strategy what you can learn from U-Sigma's three core beliefs, how to make better decisions for your organization, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Diraj. diraj Radram, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. I am so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me, Jonas. Yes, this is going to be a very, very interesting conversation because... As I've already introduced the audience to you, you have a very interesting background and also you are uh, someone with, with opinions on lots of things. So I have no doubt that we're going to be exploring lots of topics today in the world of decision sciences and data and analytics in general. But let's hear straight from you, Diraj. So in your own words, could you tell us a bit about you, who you are, what you do and your career background?
1: Sure. I am the founder and CEO of Mu Sigma. That's what I identify with myself mostly. I started my life as a management consultant, initially at PricewaterhouseCoopers and later at Booz Allen Hamilton. I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. That happened by chance. The idea of Mu Sigma came to me when I was at Booz Allen Hamilton and I pitched this idea to them saying that, look, there's a newer way of thinking about decision-making. And we should explore opportunities by manifesting it. And the best thing that happened to me was the idea got rejected. And that allowed me to see if I could build this. Uh, Microsoft became our first customer. And I am I would always be thankful to them for that. And uh, we never look back after that. Today, we work with over 140 Fortune 500 clients. We've trained more than 14,500 people in data science becoming decision science. We have a labs ecosystem that looks at the cutting edge of what AI, machine learning, algorithms, all of these things are involved in. Over the last two decades, we are coming close to generating approximately a billion dollars of profit for our company. To do that in analytics and decision sciences you need to make at least about $100 billion of impact for your customers. Uh, otherwise, they are not willing to share that with you. And that's something I'm very, very proud of. And I'm proud of my team, which has contributed to building this category uh, as much as building this company. So that's Mu Sigma and my background, quickly. Very good. And it is definitely something you can
0: be proud of. Because when I was studying your company, it's fascinating to see the journey from starting it to, I think, 17 or 18 years later, being quite the large organization that spans many continents. Now, tell us a little bit about what the company offers in terms of products and solutions, because you describe yourself as a decision sciences company. What does that entail specifically?
1: See, the big D in our world is actually not data. It's decisions. When you think about it from a purpose, it's all about helping either individuals or organizations make better decisions and faster decisions and more useful decisions. When you see it from that perspective, you will see that the world that we live in today is changing exponentially. We are moving from a bigger is better world to a faster is better world. We used to compete on economies of scale. Today, That We don't compete on that. We compete on economies of speed. We used to make products and services. Today, we make experiences. The science of experiences and the science of interactions is one and the same. So one of the hypotheses that we had very early on, that problem solving must evolve from entities to interactions. So thinking about the problem as a whole becomes very, very interesting. Your world is not one or two big problems, but many, many, many small problems that are interacting with each other. If the problem space is interactions, then the solution space must be interactions too. The future of solutioning for problems is going to be interactions between math, business, technology, behavioral science design thinking and a whole host of new things which we've been we may not even know other things are going to come and we may not even know but they have to be part of the interactions so figuring out how to think about problem solving as interactions becomes very very important that's what new sigma brings to the table we are enabling organizations to scale analytics we are enabling organizations to make it go faster to speed it up We enable organizations to make it sustainable and not let it remain in a sandbox. And last but not the least, we enable organizations to have enough slack so that when a new question comes up, they can answer it feeling abundant rather than feeling a sense of scarcity. For all of these things, you need a new way of thinking about problem solving. And that's what we bring to the table. How do you do more with less? And how do you do less to get more? So that's how we think about it. If I want to have a one-line answer for you, which I could have started with, that one-line answer would be, how do we improve the curiosity quotient of an organization? Which means cost per question must go down. Cost in terms of time and cost in terms of money. If you can answer more questions, you are as an organization, are more prepared for a world of uncertainty. In a world of uncertainty, uh, you have to solve it through optionality. And to be a producer of optionality, you have to be very curious. You have to ask a lot of questions. And that's what we think of, the curiosity quotient.
0: There's a lot to explore in that, Diraj, and we will do that, especially this curiosity quotient, I think is very powerful. I wanted to take a step back and go right back to your sort of founding moment, if I call it that. So I'm sitting here imagining you as a young guy going into the the boardroom at Booz Allen H- Hamilton with your idea ready to present and, and it gets knocked back. And there you have a choice in life. You can say, okay, no one likes my idea. I will keep going the way I am. Or you can actually say, okay, this is a a crossroads and I have to go and follow this and make this happen myself. Sure. What went through your head at that time and, and how did you decide to become
1: an entrepreneur in that moment? See, to be fair to Buzal and Hamilton, they liked my idea. They just felt that I was too young and I should make a partner before executing on it. So they just wanted to give me about five to seven years, which I was not ready for because the, I thought the time was now. So I did get positive validation from them on the thought that the idea was good. And I was not surprised by that because the idea was based on sound fundamentals. I'm a, you know, all my thinking has come from physics. You know, if there is one thing I cannot stop talking about, it's about physics. And uh, and the second order things would be movies and cricket. But physics is number one, I would say. And in physics, you know, something that has shaped my thinking in many ways is the second law of thermodynamics or otherwise called Boltzmann's law, which says that entropy in the world can only increase, which means that the world will have more uncertainty in the future. The world will have more volatility and ambiguity and the world will have more complexity. So that world would mean that decision-making in the future will only have more noise. And therefore, the ability to remove noise and get the signal is going to be very, very, very important. And that requires a new way of thinking about problem solving. So that was based on that fundamental appreciation for the fact that entropy or the lack of order will only increase. What I saw in my management consulting experience was that organizations were struggling to deal with entropy. Let me make it a little easier for you to understand. What is the purpose of an organization? The purpose of an organization is to solve problems. And when you see those problems, they manifest as content initially. It's an idea in somebody's mind. And then it becomes conversations between people. And then it becomes computation, where it goes into a machine, which will enable everything to get speeded up. And last but not the least... If all of these happen well, then it commercializes really, really well. This journey of content to commercialization is severely hampered because of unaddressed complexity in the organization. And because of that, these organizations don't thrive in uncertainty. They feel like a deer in front of headlights. They get stuck and eventually they get disrupted. So that thought stayed with me. And I felt that large Fortune 500 companies, which are going to create more and more data, are going to need a path towards changing the way they think about problem solving and allow that journey from data to decisions. The way I see it is data to dialogue and dialogue to decisions happen. That was the thinking behind how New Sigma got started. So then
0: you have this idea and you say, okay, I'm going to go and, and start up my own company. From then to actually getting customers, because there is no company really without customers, and setting all that up and then growing is quite a journey. How did you convince your customers, your first customers? You, you mentioned that one of your first ones was Microsoft, which is a pretty big ticket to land right off the bat. How did you convince them that that you were someone to bet on? Because, for all intents and purposes, here is a new guy with a new company. And what did you have? I suppose your either the way you presented yourself or your toolkits was enough for
1: for companies to sign up to. See, people think of companies as either B two B or B two C. I think of it as H two H. It's always human to human. And when you see yourself. Operating on a human to human level, neither do you feel abundance nor do you feel scarcity. It is all of us are human beings and all of us have an idea and you have to be authentic about that idea. I would talk about the concept of mu sigma continuously with as many people as possible and keep getting feedback on the idea. Keep getting feedback on the words I am using. Keep getting feedback. At an individual level, you are a GPT. You are Jonas.GPT. I am Dheeraj.GPT. And our ability to learn quickly is going to be tested by life. And from that perspective, I was practicing every day. I was a single founder with no employees for about eight months. And at that point of time, it was extremely frustrating Because the demand was not there. There was nobody willing to join me. And there was every reason to doubt. But the ability to keep going, keeping the conversations open with whoever would be willing to speak to me was a constant way to improve the conceptualization. And conceptualization becomes very, very important before content, I would say concept, right? So, and conceptualization is an iterative process. While doing that, I met with Jim Minovino, who was the head of consumer research and marketing sites at Microsoft. And Jim was a very senior person, very, very, I was a 28-year-old kid and he was uh, maybe a year away from retirement or something like that. And he was passionate about math and he liked the concept. The concept was what he liked. And he knew that I was young. And this was, the concept was coming from a young and belligerent mind. And he was willing to give this kid a chance. And I would, I am indebted to him forever for the fact that he gave me an opportunity to take a pilot and execute that for Microsoft. And we never looked back after that. Mm. Our journey was one where we took in, you know, after Microsoft, we had other customers across 10 different industry verticals slowly come in. And slowly the feedback started improving the market. The market started recognizing who Mu Sigma was. Investors started seeking us out. We took in about $14 million of primary capital and very recently returned about $900 million to our investors, $45 million to our employees. And that was, a, uh, that was very satisfying. And we also built the category. Many companies came out of Mu Sigma where they pretty much took the same model and some of my own employees and built copycats, which is not, which is the best thank you that they could give me because there's no better, you know, appreciation for you other than people saying that, Hey, what you're doing makes sense. I will also do it.
0: And today you have, I won't quote it actually. I think I found a number on the internet, but how many employees does the company have today approximately? By June, we'll be about 4,500 employees. Yeah. So that's a fantastic growth rate. And it must feel so pleasing having spent that eight months on your own, working out what the concept actually is and and, and to today. So what an amazing journey. Now, Didash, let's, let's dig into the magic that's made all this happen, the stuff that happens at, at music Sigma, because you talk about the ability for organizations to make better decisions, faster decisions and actually feel comfortable in uncertainty, which i think are sort of three very powerful dimensions. And that is something that we can aspire to, but reality is, this is at least my experience when you walk into businesses, it sounds good but no one is really wanting to rattle the trees. No one's really wanting to take big risks because uh, there is uh, organizational risk. There is also personal career risk involved and so on. Tell us about how you actually move these organizations along to change the mindset because it's almost a mindset shift before the, the technology solution. How do you do that? And maybe you could get some examples of how you've been able to, to move organizations along.
1: Sure, sure, sure. So Clarity reduces the cost of taking risk. And unless you have clarity, you cannot take risk. When you have a very complex situation in a large company, it obfuscates the details. And as it does that, it introduces fear into the organization and all the organisms inside the organization. I actually believe that even the organization is an organism. And it experiences that fear. And fear is all the negative things that could happen to one in the future. And hope is all the positive things that could happen to one in the future. But how do you convert fear into hope? Mathematically speaking, you have to have a modulus operator for create converting fear into hope. And that modulus operator modulating your fear, in other words, comes through a mind space, a mindset, which orients yourself towards learning more than knowing. And if that's your why, learning over knowing, your what has to orient itself towards experimentation over experts. And your how. Is happens by not keeping secrets. The new IP is not intellectual property, but actually interaction property. All these three things learning over knowing, extreme experimentation, and interaction property orients the organization to a mind space of abundance and not a mind space of scarcity. But to do this, it's not just you can't just say it and they will take it. You have to show it to them. You have to create processes for that. You have to create platforms that enable that. So that's what we did. We went about building talent with this mindset. We went about hiring very, very young people in India and putting them through a very rigorous interview process to get people with the right mindset. It was not about literally about their grades or about how smart were they were, but orienting it towards one thing and one thing only. Can they learn? Do they have an intention to learn? That became very, very important. And once they had that, right, we put them through a training ecosystem. Mu Sigma operates as a university in a world where many businesses, many universities have become businesses. We are a business that runs as a university, right? So the I heard somewhere that the opposite of diversity is university. So the, the thinking is a good university needs actually diversity, Right. It needs diversity in thought and needs diversity in actions. It needs diversity in all its inputs. It needs diversity in all its outputs and needs diversity in all its outcomes. So when you see it from that perspective, what we did was operated ourselves, our people, our customers and our investors as a university, as a learning environment, where we are constantly using what I would call the OODA loop, where you observe, you orient, you decide, and you act. And then you feedback loop, observe, orient, decide, act, feedback. So that perspective of creating the OODA loop became very, very important for us as a business and through that we started not just making the new kinds of food that will enable organizations to go through transformation but also build a kitchen for them that will enable them make food by themselves so making the kitchen and making food that's what we were about and really really moving from being a reliable vendor to a trusted partner to a trusted advisor in the space of decision sciences
0: so if i paraphrase what you're saying really the core of it, you have built the company by training a whole bunch of people who are, have the right uh, predisposition to be trained in, in your specific model to basically adhere to this way of thinking. And then they go and, and implement that a- across uh, organizations. And that's, that's it.
1: It's not just training our people, I would say, Jonas. It's also having a perspective to help our customers Learned our customers are also learning, and we are also learning from our customers. So, true true learning happens when all stakeholders are learning from each other, and you create an environment of learning, doing, and teaching. So, learning by doing, doing and teaching, teaching by learning. You know, all three, all these three things are constantly interacting with each other. So, our customer environment, our Sigma internally, Musicma's employees, all three, all of the stakeholders, maybe even our investors, are were learning. Everybody was learning, and we were authentic and open about our ignorance and comfortable in the discovery of ignorance and the journey of the discovery of ignorance. And that authenticity allowed us to build something which is very, very valuable.
0: Yeah. So you're, you're not the firm that, that goes in and says, let us come and help you. We know the answer. We'll come instead and help you find the answer. We don't know it, but we know how to find it with you, which is a beautiful subtlety.
1: Yeah. To be precise, we are not a know-it-all company. In fact, we are a learn-it-all company. So we believe believing in learning it all. And that's how we think about Mu Sigma. So you have, what I'd say, products and you
0: have services. So you have software solutions that come in the package. And then you also have your people that go and teach the, the, the oh, I almost call it the gospel of the company or the way to think about the making decisions. How do these things go hand in hand? And I suppose, what, what is the suite of products and services that is on offer from New
1: Sigma? Sure. That's a very important question. And I'll have to choose my words very carefully as I speak about it. See, what we see is just so that we understand the difference between products and services, right? We see a world where if a problem changes quite often, then it's very difficult to productize it, right? If, on the other hand, if the problem stays constant, it's easier to take Take the funct- functional specifications, make technical specifications, write a product, and then use that product, and it will constantly be evolving. Because of the world that's changing constantly, you cannot have a pure product because the world is changing. On the other hand, the world does not give you so much time that you can do everything by hand, so you need accelerators. So our model was not the Superman model of hiring one special person who has all this knowledge and ability in him. It was not a robot. It was not Superman. It was not a robot. It was more Iron Man, right, where the man and the machine are interacting with each other. And you'll see the word interactions being used again and again and again. So if you have hydrogen and you have oxygen, the interactions between them when it is positive creates water or life-giving. And when it's negative, it can be hydrogen peroxide and not so friendly to life. So the perspective is getting the right interaction between man and machines become very, very important. So there is problem definition, there is solution creation, and then the solution implementation. What we see is that the problem definition space has to have design thinking and empathy creation and that orient itself very well for services. The solution creation phase needs accelerators and needs software. And that's where the software comes in handy really, really. And then the solution implementation again requires a services perspective because you are landing it in a world which which is foreign to the solution. If the solution feels comfortable in a problem space, it is not even needed. You have to enter a foreign land. You have to be an immigrant. The solution is an immigrant that enters uh, the nation of problem spaces. Right. And having a having a good ecosystem that welcomes these solution immigrants into the problem spaces becomes very, very important. And that also needs to be serviced. So you have service, software, service. So it's a service as a software as a service as a software as a service as a software ecosystem. I call it the sa 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 model but not software as a service. In this case, service comes first, and then software, and then services, and then software. It's a constant feedback loop between these two things that manifests itself. So that's how we think about it. And that's what we implemented. And while we implemented this, we not only built solutions... For our customers, we think of it as new kinds of food, but we also built a new kind of kitchen for them so that it becomes sustainable for them in the future. So having the approach of the kitchen and the food coming together and interacting with each other on a constant basis becomes very, very important.
0: Yeah, fascinating. I'm sitting here as you, as you talk, uh, reflecting back on your three core beliefs. I'll quote them again just so we have them there, which is learning over knowing, Extreme experimentation and
1: what you called the new IP. So, the extreme experimentation over experts. It is important to state the other side of an idea just for ex- a more clarity. And the new IP already has the perspective of the fact that there's an old IP, interaction property over intellectual property. So, that the aspect of learning why are negative is very, very important for clarity. Yeah, absolutely. And when I hear this, Dirachai,
0: I'm thinking that you have a challenge that most listeners would also have, which is they would like to do more experimentation in their organizations. They'd like to challenge the status quo, which is really what data scientists need to do to actually change the way that things work now. Because the ruling paradigm is not necessarily what we're describing here, which is a world of increasing entropy and all this stuff but a a world where people would like things to be the way they are and stay stable. Yet you're coming in to say you actually have to experiment. You have to sort of test the limits of your organization in a controlled way, nevertheless, but you have to do that. That's a challenge that most listeners to this show would actually also have, myself included. When you meet that resistance at the senior decision-making level, how do you break through that? What are your formulas for success in organizations in
1: that regard? I think most senior leaders today in large fortune find companies realize that it is inevitable that their world is changing really, really fast. They wouldn't have any role to play in the organization if their worlds were not changing. So I think that's not lost on them. They're, they're very good at it. And so what we see is many of these large organizations want to do it, but They are, uh, they are a deer in front. The organization as a whole is a deer in front of headlights because of fear, right? The name uh, Mu and Sigma comes from the fact that to make a good decision, you need to know the answer and you need to know how confident you are about the answer. The answer comes from Mu or expectation and Sigma gives you the confidence level around what your answer could be. That's a first order, first level thinking about the name. But when you see the second order, second level thinking about the name, if you notice the past, we always, human beings have craved for uncertainty because it gives us comfort, right? And the word mu stands for the average based on what the past is. And that is the expectation. And anything around that, Gives us comfort because that's the past, and we are following the past, and therefore there is less discomfort, which is natural. Now, therefore, all uh, the game of industrializing execution was all about new shunning sigma, right? Where the factory model or the software development lifecycle, all of this was about being predictable and not having any disappointment and surprises, right? That's how you thought about it. That's why it was new shunning sigma. But now we are entering a new world, which is changing so fast that you have to be constantly exploring. You are not driving on a straight road where you can put yourself on cruise control and you can ride the car without having your hand on the wheel, but your hand is constantly on the wheel, the accelerator and the brake, and you're turning up and down and sideways, which means that you are the amount of time you're spending on exploration relative to execution is significant now. And it's only going to increase. So you have to industrialize your exploration process, your exploration platforms, your explore people, your people who explore. So that industrialization would mean that you would need a mu seeking sigma. You have to be a sigmaxer. You have to orient yourself to a world where you're not afraid of sigma, but you love sigma that perspective for the organizations to have that perspective it's not just a skill set or a tool set but it's also a mindset so what we do is first thing we do is make the ease of concept discovery through articulation through words through examples through uh, you know other people doing it in front of organ- uh, senior leaders once they buy into it they are like saying hey this is fantastic i i wish my organization was like this and and at that point of time, we go with middle management and help them through workshops and tools and processes, give them any, enough confidence. One of our two, of, We have two tools that we bring to the table in our software. The one is called the enablers of confidence. The other is called the art of problem solving. The enablers of confidence allows the middle management to feel confident enough to make the move. The art of problem solving is for the discovery of ignorance. And through this, these two tools manifest two kinds of engines in the organization. One is the signal engine, which is there's tons and tons of data. You want to remove noise and outcomes, answers or signals. That's the signal engine. But that's not enough to make a good decision. Good decisions are made through the interactions between questions and answers. So you also need an inquiry engine. So we built the manifestation that comes out of the Enablers of Confidence tool and the Art of Problem Solving tool is the inquiry engine and the signal engine. And these two in- engines interact with each other and provide insights. And eventually those insights result in decisions and outcomes and so on and so forth. So And then there's a feedback loop which allows the organization to keep doing that. So we think that that's the way we have gone and done it. And one of the things we saw... In organizations, this unaddressed complexity comes in the way of the organization dealing with fear. So, the ability to acknowledge complexity, address complexity, use things like network theory and complexity science to be able to see how various problems are connected to each other becomes very, very important. The future of work is that it is a network. So the ability to see the network of problems in the organization, see the knowledge graph, manifest that knowledge graph and say that I am going to dream about the problem space as a network, as a whole. I'm going to detail the problem space at a very, very granular level. I'm going to describe the problem through outcomes rather than through outputs or inputs. And eventually, I'm going to see this completely as a decision supply chain. That becomes really, really important. Seeing it as a decision supply chain, a journey, a flow of data to dialoguing to decisions. That's the way you ought to see it. And that's something we enabled for. Enable for. Or organizations in our interactions with them very interesting so
0: what I'm hearing is you actually have to make people comfortable to even step into this new type of problem space before you can challenge them to think differently that uh, they want to do it but they are feeling that there's a risk in, in doing that in the first place either direct risk or just the I suppose the the risk that lots of humans have in organization of making the wrong decision of losing face or just not fitting in uh, all the human uh, subliminal messages that are flying around in an organization in, in human interaction. So I think that we can take a lot from that and we can learn a lot from that approach. And because I think I've generalized here a lot, but I think still there's there's something to it. A lot of people who are coming in with technical solutions and people working in, in data sciences are problem first and, and the, the solution is to them obvious. So uh, why don't we just do it? but there's this winning of hearts and minds that has to come first.
1: Um, Is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, like I said, the journey, the uh, organization exists to solve for problems and solving the problem all the way from concept and content to uh, conversation and computation and then eventually commercialization. So when you see all these C's here, it's a journey. And the, for value to move through that journey, you need the pipes to be unclogged at all points and complexity clogs it. So unaddressed complexity, not addressed complexity, addressed complexity speeds it up and unaddressed complexity clogs it. So you, you ought to, you ought to unclog unaddressed complexity. Every idea at one point of time was complex and it, it's in its journey to become ordered. So, you know, the complex, unordered, disordered thing becomes ordered and simple. That's the journey of the idea, right? And as that journey happens, if you take that journey well and not falter in your journey, you will neither be simplistic or complicated. So when you start faltering on accepting complexity, you will either become simplistic in your thinking where you'll come up with a solution that makes you look good, even though it doesn't have any meaning with the problem. Like everything is AI today. There's a buzzword around that. You just use the word AI and you'll see some people think they can get away with it. Or it becomes too complicated where the the interactions are so obfuscated that that creates fear. So when you're simplistic, you are complicated that those are bad ways of dealing with the organization you fear. So actual complexity, authentically accepting it, and then moving in the journey to keep make it simple is the right way to go about it.
0: Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors, called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com. Now back to the show. So, Diraj, I'm interested if you could give us a concrete example of how you've done this to sort of show us the art of the possible. You can de-identify the client by all means. But I'm interested in an example of where an organization started out, perhaps a, bit, a little bit locked up in its decision-making ability to actually having this transformation and then changing
1: and actually what came out the other end. Sure, sure. So, so let me tell you a story, right? I mean, uh, uh, this is a large home improvement retailer, very well-run organization, recognize the fact that they have to be doing better and working with the contractor Or professional ecosystem in their market. And as they saw this, there was a top down perspective, a top down slogan created called Own the Pro. We got a win among the pros or the contractors. And as they were going about their journey, they saw we were working with them and they saw the problem space as a network. And when they manifested the problem space as a network, as many, many small problems and seeing which problems are working with which problems and how do we work to have more of a market share among those contractors or professionals, we quickly realized that these contractors or professionals should not be thought of as another customer segment, but actually a distribution channel for ending to end consumers. And these contractors they have a lot to offer the organization in learnings, but the organization has so much power and size uh, related to the small contractor that that interaction is not a peer-to-peer interaction. So because of which the pros, we are not learning from the pros, but we are actually telling the pros what to do. And that perspective was there. So once the problem space was seen as a network, what, what emerged out of that was that, hey, maybe it's not just about communicating downward to the pros, but also learning from the pros and own the and these small business owners or the pros have to be more professionalized to make them come to a way, come to a level where it's peer-to-peer with the organization. So own the pro became pro the own, which is professionalize the owner. And now we had to learn about the whole engagement model. We had to change the engagement model, how we would engage with them in the store. So we had to create new areas for the pros to interact with each other. We used things like video analytics to see how the pros were moving about relative to other customers and so on and so forth. So a combination of data that existed in the organization's A new data had to be created and and that combination of existing data and new data allowed for a certain level of insights, which were otherwise not there. And that helped them in their journey to be successful with the pro ecosystem. So this, if you notice some things here was that the initial problem that they came up with is what's not the final problem that they solved and what came in between the initial problem and the final problem was reframing through complexity science, through seeing the problem space as a network, through seeing the existing knowledge as a graph. The graph on existing knowledge allows for new learning. A graph transforms existing knowledge into a new learning. So when you have a two-dimensional graph, it's all there. The data is all there. But just by putting it in two graphs, out emerges a learning. That's the same thing that is happening here. Dimensionalizing the problem space The knowledge ecosystem allows for new learnings, emerges, emergent characteristics come out of addressed complexity. And that emergent characteristic is something that you want. Innovation is nothing but an emergent characteristic in the organization. And that helped us. So existing problem into new problem. And the new problem is solved. Now a better problem is solved. A more connected problem is solved. And therefore that allows for the organization to have empathy with all stakeholders better. Yeah. And it takes a certain
0: discipline, it takes a certain belief set, it takes Absolutely. a certain trust to actually go, let's spend the time defining the problem itself before we go and come up with solutions. Because you could have come up with beautiful solutions, I'm sure, to the wrong problem. Absolutely. Very, very good story and very relevant example. I, I can really see how, how often you spend not enough time on defining the problem itself. There is. Often a very clear problem, but it's not the problem that connects all the other problems. And therefore you sort of solving
1: lots of problems with, with one stone. I, I joke about it, Jonas, saying that the, the, the most important problems hide behind the most useless problems. They send the useless problems front to the people so that the important problems protect themselves from being solved. So it's a survival of the fittest for the problems, right? A problem wants to exist and it doesn't want to die. And the solution is all about killing that problem. It no more remains a problem when there is a p- good solution to it. So the problem, what it does, the problem space, what it does is it obfuscates the good problems, the important problems, and it covers itself with a lot of useless problems that other people see very easily. So the ease at wit- in, with which you see a problem is indicative of the fact that you're probably solving the wrong problem. Yes, and necessarily,
0: if you jump at the most obvious problems first, you're really just getting marginal improvement, not sort of stepwise improvement because you're
1: not going deep enough into the the set of problems. I would actually say I would say when you do that, you're not it's not just about marginal improvement, you're getting marginal destruction, I would say, in the organization because every second that the important problem is not solved, it is doing more disservice to the organization. Right. So the time that you take away from solving the important problem and you're putting it in the superficial problems that exist is actually you're hurting the organization even more and making it harder to solve the important problem. Yes.
0: I feel like I live that every day with lots of requests coming at my team and all seemingly relevant and all fair in their own right, but they're just not the biggest rocks for, for the organization. And to concentrate off between keeping people, I suppose, happy that you give them something, but also having time to spend on those, those bigger problems. So that's a constant challenge, I'm sure, for all listeners. Now, Diraj, we're almost at the end. I have one kind of big question for you to finish off because you strike me as someone who's very, you reflect a lot on things and you, you're a deep thinker. What's something that you used to believe to be true, maybe five, 10 years ago, that you have, you've really changed your mind on?
1: Uh, recently, oh, many things, many many things. It's a it's a very long list, but I at a, at a higher level, I would say that uh, and and I personally, uh, when in my journey, what I have understood is that life is a data set, and there are no mistakes or good things or anything like that. It's just a data set, and the more sigma there is, there is more learning in that, and and therefore. One of my biggest uh, learnings has been to not not be so hard on my regrets and use them as channels for learning. And I look at that as a price of admission for a learning. If I felt the pain of doing something uh, that hurt me, uh, that's the price I paid. And then the lesson is mine. And I feel like people who say you have to learn from others, uh, don't pay that price. And then it's not theirs. The lesson is not theirs. Your lesson is yours only if you learned by doing and felt the pain. And pain or suffering is very, very important. Now that pain and suffering should not become misery. And that attitude to not make pain and suffering misery is something that I've been constantly working on. I'm not still good at it, I would say. And um, one of my favorite books has been this book called The Tao of Physics, which is an interaction between Eastern mysticism and physics. It is written by Fritch of Capra. And that's a book I, I read at least once every three, four months. And I watch Interstellar probably every ma- every month once. So <laughs> those things have helped me to constantly be okay with certain beliefs and thoughts that I had before that I don't have. And many times I've seen that you have to be authentic about things that don't put you in good light probably, but still being authentic about that becomes very, very important. And I could I could name multiple things. On that front, I mean, I could, there used to be a time where I was far more motivated by extrinsic motivation than I am today, where I was motivated a lot more by validation from the external world, validation from investors, uh, validation from social media. And those times led me to a place where I had a potential for learnings. Through suffering and pain that I created for myself, and that and that's something that I keep uh, I keep reminding myself, so of the fact that I should not be oriented as much towards ex- ex- extrinsic motivation. Even this conversation that I'm having, and eventually it will go on social media and all of those you know, scare me a little bit that maybe am I slipping into extrinsic motivation again and feeding my ego more than I should. So uh, I'm trying to be as authentic as possible to answer a very deep question that you asked. I think
0: you've succeeded on that. And I, I really appreciate your answer on it and your vulnerability at the end there. And I think a lot of people are stuck in that paradigm because we are getting bombarded with Ways to measure ourselves against the external world constantly. And it is very, very hard not to do that, even if you're not wired like that. Uh, It's just the way that society is structured at the moment. Now, Diraj, we're we're at the end. My last question today is, where can people find out more about you
1: and connect with you? Uh, I'm actually quite easy to reach. I'm on LinkedIn uh, at uh, the Raj Rajaram. And you can also visit our website, uh, mu sigma dot com. You might find all the quirks associated with me in multiple videos there. And if you can deal with that and still feel like you want to talk to me, I'm always available to have a conversation. But again, Jonas, thank you so much. This was a very nice conversation. Appreciate you uh, inviting me.
0: Absolutely. And listeners do go and check out Musigma's website and especially those videos. I watched them myself and I found them entertaining, but also very enlightening. And it did shift my thinking in how I might approach problem solving going forward, just as this very conversation has. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and to share your knowledge experience and your life journey with us today. And it's been very inspirational to listen to. And I wish you and Mu Sigma all the best for the future. Hi, dear listener. Just a quick note from me before you go. If you enjoyed the show, then please don't forget to subscribe to future episodes via your favorite podcast app. I have loads more great stuff coming your way. Also, I'd love some feedback from you on this show. So please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and catch you soon. So, we've got a number one deluxe meal. Is there anything else I can get you?
1: Yeah, I'd also like a good night's sleep. Excuse me, sir? You know, the I didn't struggle all night with my uncomfortable CPAP mask? Or something like the my wife didn't kick me out to sleep on the couch because of my constant tossing and turning?
0: Sir, we don't have anything like that here. I think what you're looking for is Inspire? It's an implant that works inside your body to treat sleep apnea without a CPAP? That way you can breathe normally and rest more soundly.
1: Come on. He sounds angry. Inspire is the only FDA-approved sleep apnea treatment of its kind. It's helping tens of thousands of people finally get restful sleep. To learn more, visit InspireSleep.com. That's InspireSleep.com. Inspire. Sleep apnea innovation. Inspire is not for everyone. Talk to your doctor to see if it's right for you and review important safety information at InspireSleep.com.